Welcome to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Tonight on Socalo Radio, Shannon Brownlee, writer and fellow at the New America Foundation, whose work has appeared in publications such as The Washington Post, Time, and Business Week, discusses the themes in her book, Overtreated, Why Too Much Medicine is Making Us Sicker and Poorer. Recorded before a live audience at the California Endowment as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, Brownlee contends that health care in the United States is so expensive because it wastes as much as a third of every health care dollar on care that patients don't need and would likely avoid if they knew how useless and dangerous it is. With 30,000 patients a year dying through medical error, Brownlee maintains, when it comes to medicine, sometimes less is more. Here is Shannon Brownlee. Thank you all for coming tonight. It's really wonderful to see this audience. And I, I am happier to be here than you can imagine because I wasn't sure I was going to make it. When I went in to check in this morning at the uh, airline, <laughs> they couldn't find my reservation. And then the flight was delayed because of a mechanical problem. Then once we were cleared for takeoff, it was the, one of the scariest flights I've ever been on. And to top it all off, I lost my wallet. <laughs> so if you know anything about the healthcare system, that's kind of a good description of what it's like to be admitted to an American hospital. <laughs> they lose your records, somebody makes at least one mistake, it's really scary, and then in the end they take your wallet. <laughs> so today I'm going to talk about why our healthcare system is so inefficient, scary, and expensive. But before that, before we start, I'd like to ask you a few questions. This is the audience participation part of the program. How many people in this room know how much you spend on gasoline over the course of a year? Anybody? Oh, my goodness. You, you guys are really... You got the little Excel out there <laughs> calculating it. How many know what your yearly mortgage is? How much you pay in a year? Lots. Okay. Now... How many people know how much you spend each year on health care for your family? You guys are really on top of it. The average American family of four, family of four, spends about $16,000 a year, and that's a lot of money for most of us. It's an astronomical sum for the average American worker who makes about $40,000 a year. Even if that person is insured by his or her employer, it still takes about three months to earn their share of their family's insurance. And that's just the cost of health insurance that is partly paid for by your employer. When you figure in the total annual cost of our national health care budget, it's closer to $7,000 per person per year. Our health care bill last year was more than $2.1 trillion. That works out to be about $28,000 for a family of four. That's their share. So just think about what $28,000 would buy. Paying for health care is like having a second mortgage, it's enough to pay the interest on a small business loan. It's enough to buy a new Lexus every year. It would be a hybrid, of course. This is L.A. And you could s afford to send a child to private college. But what is $28,000 buying us in the healthcare market? This is the essence of what I want to talk about today, healthcare costs. And you'll notice that this is a topic that uh, most of our presidential candidates are studiously avoiding. We're talking about how to cover everybody, but we're not talking about cost of care. And that's because every time the topic of cost comes up, voters think that the next word out of somebody's mouth is going to be rationing. We think that 
we worry that controlling costs means losing benefits. And since I'm not running for office, I'm going to talk about health care costs. And I'm going to tell you as much as I know about it, the truth about it. I mean, number one, our health care costs are rising faster than the growth of the economy, and that's simply not sustainable. Number two, given how expensive our health care is, we ought to be getting a lot more health out of it. So I'm going to talk about why our health care is so expensive, and I'm going to talk about an aspect of health care that you may not know about or you may not think about very much, and that's unnecessary care. So here's a startling statistic. You probably won't believe it the first time I say it, but I hope by the end of the evening that you'll not only believe it, you'll understand that it's one of the most important parts of our broken health care system. We spend about $700 billion a year on care we don't need. That's billion with a B. Here's another startling fact. About 30,000 Americans are killed each year. They die prematurely from care they got that they didn't need, that did not contribute to their health, obviously. And that's the equivalent of a jumbo jet crashing about once a week. Now, imagine if the airline industry killed 30,000 people a year. If the government kept statistics on the number of people killed by unnecessary care, it would be considered one of the leading causes of death. So by the end of the evening, I hope to convince you that getting too much care can be as bad as getting too little care. By the end of the evening, I hope to convince you that unnecessary care is being delivered at the same time that 45 million Americans don't have adequate access to care because they're uninsured. And I hope to leave you with a clear sense of what's at stake in the next presidential election and what's at stake here in the state of California if you get a chance to vote vote on a ballot initiative to provide health insurance to every citizen in the state. And by the end of the evening, I hope to convince you that when it comes to medicine, sometimes less is more. So what are we getting for our $2.1 trillion? For that kind of money, we better be getting Mercedes-Benz care. And that's actually what a lot of our politicians want to tell us. Um, Rudy Giuliani said recently, we have the best health care in the world. All the places that have government-run health care, he said, it's inferior to us. Which sort of sounds like our current president in in the uh, construction of the sentence, but many of you probably already know that this is simply not the case. The World Health Organization recently ranked the health systems of 191 countries, and we are not near the top not even close. France and Italy took the top two slots. The United States was a dismal 37th. We've known for years that America has high infant mortality rate, so it's no surprise that we rank dead last compared to Western Europe, Australia, and Canada. But what's not so well known is that we rank 41st in maternal mortality. In 2001, U.S. life expectancy at birth was 77 years, which is a long time, but it puts us on a par with Cyprus, Costa Rica, and Chile. These are countries that should be beating us at soccer, not at health care. So the good news is, is that we've done a better job than other industrialized nations in reducing smoking. The bad news is that our obesity epidemic is still the worst in the world, and 45 million of us are still uninsured. Did anybody catch the story in the Washington Post? It may have made it into other newspapers um, about a little boy named Diamante Driver. It appeared last year. Diamante was 12 years old when he died of a brain infection that started as an abscessed tooth. His mother didn't have insurance, and she didn't have the money to take care of her children's teeth. Diamante didn't want to complain because his mother was really worried about his younger brother's teeth. And so by the time she got him to the emergency room, The infection had spread to his brain, 
and Diamante Driver died in a hospital that is less than five miles from the White House. And this is the same White House that proclaimed recently that the uninsured can always get care in an emergency room. And in this Christmas season, that sort of made me think of, are there no workhouses, are there no prisons, which you may remember from the Christmas Carol. And Diamante is not an isolated case. About 18,000 Americans die each year because they don't have access to health care. Now, I could go on with bad news about how bad our system is, but I think I could stop. So if it's so bad on average, or so low quality on average, and it isn't covering 45 million people, why on earth is it so expensive? Now, number one on most people's list is probably in the insurance industry, the health insurance industry. And last year, the insurance industry made $30 billion in profit. And if you want to get rich, one way to do it is get a job at an insurance company, work your way up to CEO, and you too can walk away a billionaire. Bill McGuire was CEO of United Healthcare for 17 years, and over the last five years of his time, he, his, his total compensation was $342 million. When he left United, he was given a goodbye present of $1.1 billion. Now, I don't know if we need a private health insurance industry. If the industry collapsed tomorrow, it would be a very bad thing for all the people who work there, obviously, because they'd be out of a job. It might not be such a bad thing for our healthcare system because our insurance industry is an administrative monstrosity. We have thousands of different payers, each one with its own billing codes, its own rules for what it will pay for and what it won't. It's a mess and it adds waste and confusion to an already wasteful and confused system. And it frustrates the hell out of patients. I'm sure every one of you has spent time haggling with your insurance company over whether or not it's going to cover something. Now, if you ask your doctor, she's going to tell you that the best thing we could do for health care costs is to fire every insurance executive above the level of vice president. But what if we got rid of private insurance entirely and went to a single-payer system? What would that do to costs if we had Medicare for all? Medicare is more efficient than the private insurance industry. It wastes less money on administrative overhead, on paper-pushing, So by going to a single-payer system, we would get rid of that waste, and we'd save about $200 billion, which is a start. Now, you'll hear people talk about all kinds of other reasons why our health care is expensive. We use more drugs and more expensive drugs than our European counterparts. We have more technology. Our doctors make more money. We don't have to wait in line to get a CT scan or a knee replacement. So we pay for the privilege of access. But there are two other reasons that our health care is expensive that don't get talked about, and they account for the lion's share of why our health care is so expensive. Number one, our system delivers this enormous amount of unnecessary care. And number two, much of that care is uncoordinated, chaotic, and it fails to prevent expensive disabling diseases. So first I'm going to talk about useless care. We spend between 20 and 30 cents on every healthcare dollar on completely useless and potentially harmful tests, treatments, surgeries, CT scans, drugs that offer over only marginal benefits. And that's probably pretty hard to believe. I mean, almost everything in our personal experience says exactly the opposite that we're not getting enough care. When you go to see your primary care doctor, you sit in the waiting room cooling your heels, and then you get to go into the examining room and take all your clothes off and put a little paper gown on and sit on the examining room and on the examining table and wait some more. And then your doctor zooms in, spends an average about seven minutes with you, just enough time to ask a few questions, hand you a prescription, and zoom off to the next patient. And when you try to get an appointment with a specialist, it takes weeks. 
And when you try to fill the prescription that your doctor wrote, your insurance company may refuse to fill it or wants you to get a different drug. So where's the unnecessary care in all of that? And where's the unnecessary care in the death of Diamante Driver? You're listening to Shannon Brownlee, author of Overtreated, Why Too Much Medicine is Making Us Sicker and Poorer. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. For more information or to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return to Shannon Brownlee in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. Next time on Day to Day. Hello, this is Mitt Romney. From personal computerized pitches. Frank suggested that I give you a call about supporting my campaign. To rapping ringtones. Obama, Obama. The presidential hopefuls are offering some new online campaign stunts, but will that compute with voters? We're taking them from someone who's engaged and then hopefully too active. It's high tech campaigning next time on Day to Day. Weekday mornings at 9 on 89.3 KPCC. The primary campaign season heaped up further with Saturday's South Carolina Democratic primary and next Tuesday's Florida GOP one. On the next edition of Air Talk, Monday morning at 10, our focus will be on the latest election results and where things are stacking up on both the Republican and Democratic sides. It's Air Talk, weekday mornings at 10, here on 89.3 KPCC. Every day on All Things Considered, we bring you novel ideas and remarkable stories. This is really a new development. Oh my God, I will never forget that. You can't teach that kind of stuff, you just have it. We can shock them a little too. Something new, something unexpected, maybe even unforgettable on All Things Considered from NPR News. Weekday afternoon starting at 3.30 on 89.3 KPCC. Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. We now return to Shannon Brownlee, author of Overtreated, Why Too Much Medicine is Making Us Sicker and Poorer. Now this is the terrible paradox of our healthcare system. It is failing to deliver needed care to millions of people, and at the same time, it is delivering $700 billion worth of care to people that they don't need. Now, since your personal experience says you're not getting enough care, how can I stand up here and say we're getting too much? Now, do we know that this is happening? We know it by looking at patients in different parts of the country. It turns out that what happens to patients depends on where they live. Take a patient who has a heart attack. If you have your heart attack in Salt Lake City, your hospital bill will come to about $4,000. If you have your heart attack here in Los Angeles, and I hope that none of you do, your bill will be double, about $8,000. If you have a broken hip in Seattle, your care will cost $3,900. If you break your hip in Miami, it'll cost you $6,000. 
Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, duh, everything costs more in Los Angeles. Of course it costs more to have a heart attack in Los Angeles than Salt Lake City. But the cost of caring for patients who have exactly the same medical condition can't be blamed on differences in prices. Yes, things cost more here in L.A., including paying for nursing staff and things like that. But the difference isn't big enough to account for how much we spend. So let's look what happens at individual hospitals. If you're a Medicare recipient with a chronic disease, if you have diabetes, heart disease, multiple sclerosis, high blood pressure, and you're cared for over a two-year period at at UCLA, you are going to cost Medicare $106,000. If you're the same patient at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, you will cost only $34,000. $106,000, $34,000. Same patients, wildly different spending. These dollar figures are a way of measuring how much gets done to patients at UCLA versus Mayo Clinic. They reflect the amount of care that's delivered and the number of CT scans, blood tests, surgeries, visits from specialists, days in the intensive care unit. In other words, patients are getting a lot more stuff done to them at UCLA than they are at the Mayo Clinic. Now, these two hospitals, Mayo Clinic and UCLA, are considered two of the best hospitals in the world. So tell me, how can the best care in the world cost three times more than the best care in the world? Well, maybe outcomes are better at UCLA. Now, I don't think anybody in this particular room would begrudge spending more on patients who go to UCLA versus the Mayo Clinic if you get to have a longer life out of it, if you have less disability, if you have better health. Unfortunately, all the extra care that UCLA is delivering is not leading to better outcomes. When you look at how much we spend on heart attack patients, the ones who get more care don't live longer. They don't have a higher quality of life. And when you look at how much care patients with a broken hip get at different hospitals, the ones who get more care don't do any better. They don't live longer either. Patients at UCLA aren't getting better care than patients at the Mayo Clinic. In fact, they're getting worse care. More care sometimes is worse. And the chances of dying at a hospital that gives you a lot of extra care are 2 to 4% higher than a hospital that gives you more conservative treatment. Extra care can be dangerous. Now, I don't know about you, but I found this this finding kind of shocking when I first came across it and kind of hard to believe. And I can see, looking around, that there are faces that are thinking, I don't believe her. (laughs) And I can tell you it's not a very popular idea with hospitals and physicians. And it's taken about 30 years for researchers, mostly by a group of researchers at Dartmouth, to show beyond a doubt that this is true. And it's hard for everybody to believe in part because it violates everything we think we know about how markets work. Now, I'm not an economist, but I'm pretty sure that one of the central tenets of economics is that you get what you pay for. So if you pay $400 a night to stay at the Four Seasons, you expect a soft bed and fluffy pillows and a fabulous meal and expensive shampoo. If you pay $40 a night at Motel 6, you're lucky to get clean sheets and a bar of soap. So then why isn't the extra $70,000 that UCLA spends on caring for patients going towards higher quality care? Even more important, why isn't that $70,000 producing better outcomes? Because the $70,000 went towards unnecessary care. It paid for useless treatment. It paid for tests that didn't need to be given. It paid for minor procedures mostly. It's very interesting. It's not going towards the big stuff like heart bypass. It's going towards the little stuff. 
And you know, I don't mean to pick on LA, uh, UCLA. I'm using it as an example for a couple of reasons. One, it is one of the most prestigious hospitals in the country, and two, it's here in LA. But the fact is there are lots and lots of hospitals around the country that are delivering just as much unnecessary care as UCLA is. And you can find them in Miami, in Manhattan, in Boston, Dallas, Chicago, Philadelphia. You can find them in small towns, Boise, Idaho, Spokane, Washington. And there are hot spots for particular surgeries around the country. Right now, Bend, Oregon ought to be considered the, the back surgery capital of the world. Because if you live in Bend, Oregon, you are four times more likely to get back surgery than if you live in, say, Baltimore, Maryland. Now, is that because there's more injured backs in Bend? No, it's because there are more aggressive back surgeons. Right now, Elyria, Ohio is a hot spot for getting a procedure known as a cardiac catheterization. If you live in Elyria, you're three times more likely to get this procedure than if you live in Cleveland, which is 50 miles away. And this is a little bit ironic since Cleveland is home to the Cleveland Clinic, the famed heart hospital. So let me give you an example of unnecessary care. A member of my family recently had a cardiac catheterization. What happened was the doctor goes up and looks at the, car, uh, the coronary arteries, which are the arteries that feed the heart muscle itself, finds a couple of little blockages, tiny you know, semi-blockages, and puts in stents. And stents are these amazing little technologies. They are little tiny mesh, wire mesh tubes that are about the diameter of a pencil lead. You slip it up there into the coronary artery, and you expand it, and it opens up this little bit of blockage. Now, if you are in the middle of a heart attack, a stent can save your life. The doctor can open that blockage that's causing your heart attack and stop it dead in its tracks. But my relative was not having a heart attack. The doctor put the stent in to prevent a heart attack. Actually, he put in three stents. So my relative spends a night in the hospital, and he goes home the next day, and then he falls over and cuts open his face. So he goes back into the hospital so they can patch up his face and try to figure out why he fainted. And it turns out that somebody gave him a double dose of high blood pressure medicine, and so his blood pressure dropped so low that he passed out. And the next day he's home after his second night in the hospital with a bandaged face and about $20,000 of little wire stents in his chest. So here's the part that's really kind of outrageous. The whole thing, the surgery, the stents, the hospital stay, the the cut on the face, the whole $20,000 of it was a waste of time and money because the stents in his chest aren't going to make a difference in whether or not he has a heart attack. Stents are great for saving people's lives when you're having a heart attack. They're great for preventing a, a kind of chest pain called angina. He wasn't having chest pain and he wasn't having a heart attack. So why did the cardiologist put the stents into him? Why do they put stents into people who aren't having heart attacks and aren't having symptoms of angina? And why do hip fracture patients cost more in Miami than Seattle? In other words, why are hospitals and doctors giving so much unnecessary care? Now, doctors will tell you that malpractice worries are to blame. They believe that they give tests and treatments that people don't need in order to avoid being sued. And, and you have to understand, for your doctor, being sued is awful. It is worse than you being fired. It's a terrible experience. It wounds them to the core, even when they win. And so they'll do almost anything to avoid a lawsuit, including giving people stuff they know the, person, the patient doesn't really need. Now, the best estimates, however, suggest that doctors practicing defensive medicine accounts for about 15%, 1-5% of that $700 billion of unnecessary care. It is a piece of the puzzle, but it's not the whole thing. A lot of conservative economists will tell you that it's you, the healthcare consumer. You used to be called patients, now you're healthcare consumers. 
And you are the ones who are demanding all this extra care because you aren't paying for it out of pocket. In other words, the reason our health care is so expensive is because the consumer is demanding a boatload of unnecessary care. And they have a solution to this problem. The way to stop you from doing this demanding is by giving you more skin in the game. You need to pay more out of pocket so you won't go running to the doctor for every sniffle and you won't ask for all kinds of tests and surgeries and drugs. Now, this solution is known as consumer-driven health care, and the idea is that people have higher deductibles and higher copays. They will become more prudent purchasers of health care. They will search for the cheapest place to get treated. They will stop asking for care that they don't need. Now, it's true. As patients, we do demand a certain amount of stuff, uh, drugs especially that are advertised on television and imaging tests, CT scans. A doctor actually recently told me that an 11-year-old boy came in and said he thought he was having a heart attack and he wanted a cardiac catheterization. I don't think my 11-year-old knows what a cardiac catheterization is. But every time an economist or a politician says that giving patients more skin in the game is going to bring down costs, I think to myself, these people cannot possibly have met any real patients. Because the real patients I know who cost the most are the ones who are in the hospital. And if you're sick enough to be in the hospital, you are in no position to be acting like a prudent healthcare consumer. I have yet to see a really sick patient sit up in the hospital bed and say, excuse me, doctor, how much is that MRI going to run me? And it is really hard to believe that the average patient at UCLA is demanding $70,000 worth of unnecessary care compared to a patient at the Mayo Clinic. The reason UCLA is spending $70,000 more and Miami hospitals, et cetera, et cetera, on the same patient has to do with the way we pay hospitals and doctors. Now, remember that central tenet of economics that you get what you pay for. We pay doctors and hospitals to do more. We don't pay them to do better. We pay them to do more. We don't pay them for how well they take care of us. We pay them for how much they do. It's called fee-for-service, and this is how the vast majority of doctors and hospitals get paid. They get paid for every visit to a patient, every procedure performed, every stent the cardiologist puts in your chest. Hospitals get paid for every day you spend in the hospital, every day in the ICU. And doctors and hospitals are especially likely to deliver care or unnecessary care when there isn't a lot of evidence to guide them about when it's appropriate to give that care. They tend to deliver unnecessary care in the gray areas of medicine. And this is a little secret about medicine. Only about half of what doctors do is backed up by valid evidence. The other half is based on assumptions and tradition and new ideas. It's not based on really good evidence. So we like to say that medicine is both an art and a science. And when medical school uh, students graduate, their deans will often say, only half of what you've learned is right. Unfortunately, we don't know which half. So our payment system pays the doctor and the hospital whether or not the treatment was based on the right half. And that's kind of like paying more for a car based on how many parts are in it, rather than which cars have better repair records or which go faster. I mean, just imagine how many new little special parts car makers would start adding on if that's how we priced cars. And just imagine how poorly they would run. And that's why healthcare runs so poorly. Hospitals aren't paid to give us the care that would keep us out of the hospital in the first place because they only make money when you are admitted into the hospital. It would be financial suicide to keep you out. 
Our doctors are not paid or compensated adequately for the time that it would take to prevent disease and keep us healthy. They do get paid to treat you once you get good and sick. So I'm going to give you a specific example of how this works. They're really perverse economic incentives, and they're really bad for patients. If you have diabetes, one of the things that may happen to you if you don't control your blood sugar is you'll get an infection in your foot that won't heal, and that may lead to the need to amputate your foot. Insurance companies will often cover the amputation of the foot, but they generally won't cover the time it would take for your doctor to teach you to inspect your feet every day and care for any little cuts. In other words, the things that would keep you from needing to get your foot amputated in the first place is not paid for. So here's what it takes to keep diabetes under control. Diabetics have to maintain their weight, they have to eat a strict diet, they have to exercise, they need to keep track of their blood sugar, get regular checkups, they need to see an ophthalmologist regularly to see if they've begun to suffer nerve damage that leads to blindness. They need to be checked for heart disease, which is one of the many bad things that can happen if you don't control the, the disease. It isn't rocket science, or, or maybe I should say it isn't brain surgery. It just takes time and care. So what happens if you don't control your diabetes? A wonderful woman I know named Denise Rogers is kind of the poster child for what can happen. Denise was a singer on Broadway as a young woman, and now she lives in Bozeman, Montana, where she's the reverend of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And she was diagnosed with diabetes, type 2 diabetes, at the age of 12, and her disease was left completely untreated until she was 24 when she was pregnant. And after that, each time Denise went to a doctor, she was given a prescription for drugs to help control her blood sugar, and she was told her diabetes was making her a walking time bomb. Now, she's nearly six feet tall, and she weighed 250 pounds at the time, which means she was obese. But none of the doctors she went to had any suggestions for how she was going to lose weight. So she managed to drop to a size 12 on her own, but she pretty much ignored her diabetes until she had a heart attack at the age of 40. By that time, she'd gotten her college degree, a doctorate in divinity from Princeton, and become the first black minister in Bozeman, Montana. And at the hospital, the cardiologist said to her, you're having these heart problems because you have diabetes. And Denise was surprised. She'd lost 100 pounds at that point. She'd stopped drinking alcohol for 12 years. And she is a very intelligent woman, but she thought her blood sugar had to be normal because she did all the right things. And nobody had ever told her that she had to keep on top of her disease. So she had her second heart attack four months later, and had to be flown 200 miles away for emergency open-heart surgery and a quintuple bypass. Now, the good news is modern medicine saved Denise's life. The bad news is Denise Rogers has cost her insurer tens of thousands of dollars. Now she's disabled not only by diabetes, but also by heart failure, nerve damage, and kidney disease, all of which that could have been delayed or possibly even prevented if her diabetes had been controlled. Why didn't anybody take Denise Rogers in hand and help her understand what she needed to do? Now, I can almost guarantee that there is at least one person in this room who has diabetes who has no more idea about what they have to do than Denise did. So why aren't our doctors and hospitals doing what they need to do to prevent tragedies like this? Because they lose money when they provide the coordinated preventive care that diabetics need. Because preventing a diabetic from being hospitalized means lost revenue for the hospital. And because making sure a diabetic understands what she needs to do to control her disease takes time and doctors are not paid for the time that it would take. Because all too often in our healthcare system, doing the right thing for patients is bad for business. So what does all this mean for the rest of us? 
It means geography is destiny. It means what happens to you when you're sick has less to do with what you need and more to do with where you live and how the hospital you're admitted to treats you. You're listening to Shannon Brownlee, author of Overtreated, Why Too Much Medicine is Making Us Sicker and Poorer. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. For information or to listen to past broadcasts, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. Days on 89.3 KPCC. This is Talk of the Nation. I'm Neil Cunningham. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Remember the good old days? This is Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Bank of America has announced that it. Good afternoon. I'm Pat Morrison. It's something of an article of faith in business in Southern California that the cost of doing business. More NPR and local news on 89.3 KPCC. many Californians, it's the first presidential primary in a lifetime that actually matters. There's so many important things going on in the history of America as far as the candidates. So I just want to be part of this, being part of the process. <laughs> you can be part of the process, too. I'm Kitty Feldy. Monday on KPCC, we'll tell you how and pick up a hundred bucks. Yes, you, too, can become a poll worker. Next time on The World, a hot topic for would-be presidents. Greenhouse gas emissions. Global climate change. Global warming. Global warming. Go green. The next president's decisions could have global consequences. We hear what the candidates say and what they could do in office. The climate and the White House, that's next time on The World. Weekdays at noon on 89.3 KPCC. Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Now we return to Shannon Brownlee, author of Overtreated, Why Too Much Medicine is Making Us Sicker and Poorer. We are paying a lot, an awful lot for care we don't need, even as many of us don't get care that we do need. And we are quietly bankrupting our economy. Peter Orzag is the head of the Congressional Budget Office, and he recently testified before Congress that the United States is on an unsustainable fiscal path. The primary determinant of the nation's health is health care costs. So if costs continue rising at the same rate, Medicare and Medicaid will consume the entire federal budget by 2050. By 2082, health care will consume half of the entire GDP. Now, I find that a very disturbing thought. Uh, Howard Schultz is the CEO of Starbucks, and he recently announced that he's now spending more on health insurance than he spends on coffee. And that means that Starbucks is basically a health insurance company with a sideline in Frappuccinos. And by 2082, the entire U.S. economy will effectively be a healthcare industry with a sideline in weapons, tourism, and financial services. That's not a sustainable economy. 
So what can we do? The first thing we can do is ask our presidential candidates to start talking openly about cost and what they can really do about it. Now, it, it shouldn't be that hard to really sort of think conceptually, theoretically, about, about how to control costs. I mean, there's this piggy bank out there full of $700 billion. And it's care that you probably wouldn't want if you understood that it increases the risk to you every time you go into the hospital. That $700 billion is more than enough to cover every American who's uninsured with plenty left over. And we're a long, long ways from having to talk about rationing. Number two, we have to cover everybody. I don't care how we get there. Mandates, no mandates, Medicare for all. It just has to be done. And not just because it's the moral thing to do. It's the right thing to do from an economic standpoint. Number three, we need a Manhattan Project for medical evidence. Half the time your doctor is flying blind, and we need to publicly fund a crash program to find out what works and what doesn't in medicine. And then we need to stop paying for the stuff that doesn't work. And finally, we need to pay for health care in a completely different way. We need to pay for value, not volume. And, you know, this method of payment isn't that new. Places like the Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic, your own Kaiser system here in California, they already know how to do it. So Mayo and Kaiser and a handful of other health care providers around the country are known as integrated systems. They pay their doctors a salary, and they measure the health of their patients. They expect their doctors to provide you with coordinated care, care where the doctors are acting like they're on the same team. I mean, right now, healthcare is supposed to be a team sport, and everybody's running their own play, and there's no quarterback. So they make sure that care prevents you from getting diabetes in the first place, and if that fails, they try to coordinate care that controls your disease by making sure all of your doctors know the same play. These integrated systems expect their doctors to communicate with one another, and they assign a single doctor to watch over your case if you're in the hospital. Because their care is integrated, they can do it better, and they do it cheaper. Now, after everything I've told you tonight, you, you may be surprised that I'm actually feeling kind of optimistic about the future of health care. Really? <laughs> or maybe hopeful. Optimistic is when you have data. Hopeful is when you're, you just... You're looking forward to the best. But I'm actually optimistic because we do have these models of integrated care. They're already up and running. But mostly I'm optimistic because I've spent the last three years traveling around the country talking to doctors and patients, and your doctors want to do the right thing. They are frustrated, they are beaten down by paperwork, and they're beaten down by their incomes going down and losing relationships with patients. And most of them would welcome a system that works better than the one we have, but they're afraid to give up the current system for fear what replaces it will be worse. Now, the current system is probably going to get worse before it gets better. But it seems to me that the first step towards a better system is for both doctors and patients to learn that in medicine, sometimes less is more. Thank you. Now it's time for questions from the Sokolo audience for Shannon Brownlee, author of Overtreated, Why Too Much Medicine is Making Us Sicker and Poorer. Rory Johnston, you mentioned near the beginning the question of whether doctors are overpaid. I heard once a statistic as to what fraction of a doctor's income he pays for medical malpractice insurance. Do you have a figure for that? 
Thanks for the question. It really varies with the specialty. Certain physicians like um, OBGYNs and surgeons have much higher malpractice premiums than, say, your, your GP. So I don't know what the average is. I just know that they're very different for different physicians. And I don't think that physicians are overpaid. I think that there are some super specialists that are certainly making one heck of a lot of money. But your primary care doctor is not definitely not overpaid, for example. So I don't think that's what the problem is. It's not that they're overpaid. It's that they are getting paid on the basis of delivering care, some of which is really wonderful and terrific and, and is improving people's health, and some of which is unnecessary. My name is Kimberly Sinclair, and I teach health at Glendale High School. And the CTA, the California Teachers Association, which is the union for the teachers, is very adamant about having employers pay their health care. And currently, my district, Glendale Unified, is one of the very few that still pays our health insurance. But there's a lot of pressure for the employees to pay part of that. And the CTA's position is that if the employees pay, then healthy people will opt out and sick people will stay in. So I'm wondering what your advice to me would be in persuading my superintendent and the school board to continue the practice of providing health insurance for all of their district employees as opposed to having them pay part of it. This is really the critical problem. When you allow people to opt out of insurance, healthy people opt out, and that leaves the sickest in the pool, and therefore the insurance gets even more expensive, and therefore the next tier of healthy people drops out. One solution is the mandate, is to say if you live and breathe, you must have health insurance, just like if you drive a car, you must have car insurance. And there are certain merits in that proposal. I think Barack Obama is, op is opposed to it because he's concerned that it really is going to be very, very difficult financially for many people to avoid he health insurance in this country unless we massively subsidize it for people under a certain income. But I don't know what you should advise the California Teachers Association because I can also understand that they're struggling with the cost of health care. And increasingly, every, every week, another bunch of businesses decides they can no longer insure their workers. And so more and more people get onto the roles of the uninsured. I'm Bob Gelfand. If you were to put all of the doctors and all of the nurses and all the ancillary uh, skills on salary as opposed to fee-for-service, how much would you pay them? I don't know, but you're speaking my language. I think fee-for-service has got to go. I think the practices that work the best, they're salaried, they're integrated, they're group practices. So we see advertisements, postcards that come through for doctors in training that promise an income of, say, $450,000 a year for a, a subspecialty. That's probably like an interventional radiologist. It's a lot of money. I, I don't want to talk about all uh, the details, but and it's not in Los Angeles either. You'd have to move to, like, South Carolina or something like that. But it seems like that the economy of the United States can't bear this kind of a load. I think that it's really important not to, in talking about health care, partly because of political considerations. It's very important not to say doctors are greedy, doctors are making too much money, and that's the way to extract our pound of flesh out of the healthcare system. I think the average physician, if you take the super specialist versus the, the primary care and you look at what the average income is, it is not really that high, especially for somebody who spent umpteen years in postgraduate education and comes out with $100,000 in debt. 
But there are certainly some specialties that make a great deal of money. And our physicians, in proportion to what the average American makes, make more than what a European physician makes in comparison to the average European. But I don't know that that's the best way to go about it in terms of trying to get costs under control. I think, there's, I think it's much better to go after the utilization and the unnecessary utilization. Now, that means that many physicians' incomes will go down if they deliver less care if they're in a fee-for-service system. Hi, I'm George Fields. About 80% of Americans say they want to die at home, and yet about 80% die in a hospital or nursing home. I wondered if you had any thoughts as to why and what you think we can do to do about that. Uh, thank you for that question. It actually gets into one of the, the key pieces of this puzzle, which is why is it that, for example, we see higher utilization, higher hospitalization rates, higher spending in, in Los Angeles versus Seattle? And one of the reasons is that the supply of medical resources is much higher here. We have more hospital beds here in Los Angeles. You have more ICU beds. And what happens is that, that physicians and patients tend to assume that more is better and more intensive is better. And when there is an ample supply of resources to be used, they do get used. And so physicians and patients' families make decisions, oh, we'd better put grandma into the hospital because she has pneumonia. When those, those resources are not so readily available, decisions are made differently. And that's a piece of the puzzle. So in essence, Los Angeles is overbedded. And that overrides the, the patient's wishes often, even if you have advanced directives. Where you go to the hospital is more important than whatever you say in your advanced directive. And that depends on what the supply of resources is at that hospital. My name is Anita Hermish, and I have a company, Character-Based Success, that focuses on choices. And I have an unusual question. There is so much kind of a psychology that we are going to be sick sooner or later in life. Do you know of any programs where we could expand our one-on-one -on -one friendships with our loved ones to say, hey, what are you doing to increase your health condition? and reduce health care expenses. That's a great idea. I see a small business in the making. <laughs> it's a great idea because, because I mean, this is, this is the struggle that I have with consumer-driven health care, which is that, that there is some validity to the idea that if we don't have a financial stake in our health care, we sometimes tend to sort of neglect it. But that, that's not true of everybody. It, and, and the problem with consumer-driven health care is the idea that we're actually going to bring down costs in a significant way by giving patients higher deductibles and higher co-pays. But the idea that you do want people to have a stake in their own health care is a very, very good one. Larry Goldstein, how do we get from here to there? I mean, what do we do as, as, a, as a citizen? As a citizen? I think that first you vote for covering everybody in California. It's going to cost a lot. And it's going to reveal how expensive, how, how fast healthcare costs are escalating. And I think it will force the state to start making real changes. And I don't mean the state government. I mean the entire sort of healthcare economy in the state to make real changes. As far as taking care of your own health, you find yourself a primary care doctor who spends time with you and really talks to you. And you talk about integrating care and coordinating care. And there are now health records that you can keep on the web. And it's a great idea. I don't think that patients should be expected to you know, look up every disease and know everything about their disease. I mean, that's why your doctor went to medical school. 
so they could know more about, about medicine and, and health. But it isn't a bad idea to have your records in a, in a form, like on a CD that you can, or a data stick, that you can take to each of your doctors so that they stay in the loop as much as possible. Uh, I'm a member of Kaiser, and Kaiser already does that. Everything's on the computer, and you can access all your, all your tests and all your exams and everything, which is really wonderful. So, so everybody in the system... Any doctor in the system has access to that record. Listen, in Northern California, if you are a member of Kaiser, you have a 30% lower chance of dying from heart disease. I mean, Kaiser works. And, and certainly there are plenty of um, horror stories to tell about Kaiser, but I think one of the reasons we sort of think, oh, Kaiser and, and uh, it, it's so bad is because when a horror story is reported, it has a name attached to it, and that name is Kaiser. The same horror story happens out in the sort of fee-for-service world, and nobody has, a, has an identifier for it. Kaiser really works. The Mayo Clinic really works. Intermountain Healthcare really works. Geisinger works. Those are some of the systems, these integrated systems around the country. And what I would like to see is that we have many such systems competing with each other so that the Kaiser system in L.A. and the Mayo system in L.A. are showing off who can do a better job, who can do it cheaper, faster, better, higher quality. And that uses the, the power of the, the capitalist system with the power of this integrated system. Hi, my name is Mike. Talking about these integrated systems, uh, I followed very closely um, how doctors don't have an incentive to practice preventative health care, but it seems to me that the insurance companies do with these integrated systems in practicing preventative medicine that can prevent expensive surgeries and things like that in the future. So my question is, are insurance companies acting on that economic incentive to have greater profits? Are we starting to see more of these integrated systems coming out? And uh, related, have Kaiser and some of these other integrated systems, have they been showing uh, more profits and things like that than some of their other companies? I really feel for health insurers in a lot of ways because they cannot impose integration on physicians. And in a lot of areas of the country, physicians have been pretty resistant to the kind of integration that we really need. They also don't have an economic incentive to offer preventive care for the reason that by the time you get the disease that this company A prevented, you will be insured by company D. And so company A doesn't really want to invest the money in preventing the disease that will, the savings will accrue to company D. And, I mean, this is why health insurers often didn't cover pap smears for a long time, because you weren't going to develop the, the cancer that they were preventing until you were probably a Medicare patient. So the incentives for insurers aren't right either. So we've got to start aligning the incentives for everybody somehow. And one of the powerful forces, I think, has to be employers. But employers are not yet feeling the bite of health insurance enough to start organizing themselves and forcing insurers to then do what insurers need to do to get, get the kind of changes in the system. Because employers can always just drop health insurance. They raise the price, they pass on more of the cost to their employees, or they simply say, we're not going to insure you anymore. You've been listening to Shannon Brownlee, author of Overtreated, Why Too Much Medicine is Making Us Sicker and Poorer. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free live events around town. For more information, go to SocaloLA.org. 
That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The executive producer for SoCalo Radio is Peter Stenzhold. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in.